Hi, this is Bill Arnold. Missed a show or need me talking to help you sleep tonight? I have several solutions to that situation. Here are the podcasts from the show. You are the best for listening and supporting Faith Radio. Welcome to Afternoons with me. I'm Bill Arnold. Awfully glad to uh, have this time together with you. Looking forward to it. I always do. And I was driving over here today to the studio. We're awfully close to where the Minnesota State Fair is happening. And I think this is day two. This is day two of the 10-day State Fair. And I, I didn't go last year. Probably not going this year. I went about three years ago. And they have just about everything that you can imagine at the State Fair. They, they had a booth where they were doing cholesterol testing. I thought that was kind of interesting. It also happened to be right next to, to the booth where they were selling deep-fried avocados wrapped in bacon and dipped in cheese. So I thought the whole thing seemed a little odd. But that's the State Fair for you. It's a beautiful day here in the Twin Cities. So if you were going to get out and go there today, if you're living in this part of the world, it's a, a spectacular day. And having it be towards the end of August, if you're like me, and I know I am, I'm starting to panic just a little bit that these warm summer days are starting to come to an end. So it's been a great summer and I'm awfully looking forward to all my guests coming up. Tim Bailey's already on our studio line. He's written a book called Church Reformed. And after that, Mark Buchanan is going to join me on the program. That's all in hour one. In hour two, Dr. Alex McFarland will be with me. And then Dan Brocky from Bethany International. That's the lineup for the whole day. So you're going to love this show. But let me take 60 seconds and I'll bring on Tim. Hi, I'm Susie Larson. The Faith Radio Fall Fundraiser is coming soon, and I want to personally invite you to join with us in supporting our ministry, an outreach that's steadily growing in radio signals, connecting with more and more listeners, finding us online or on the app, or listening on demand to our podcast. Your financial partnership makes programs like mine possible, in addition to the relevant Bible preaching and family-focused teaching, helping to make the connection between faith and life every single day. God is at work through Faith Radio, and we would love to have you be a part of keeping this ministry strong and growing. Your gift today will give us a strong start to fall share and help us build the financial base for sharing the message of hope through Jesus Christ all year long. Here's how to get involved. You can call 877-933-2484 to join our support team or give safely and securely online at myfaithradio.com. And join us Tuesday, September 10th for the start of fall share. show. I'm so glad to be welcoming Tim Bailey to the program. He's written a book called Church Reformed, and professing evangelical Christians seem to be leaving the church in big numbers, and fewer Americans are even going to church at all. It looks like, according to Gallup, we're down about 20% in the last 20 years. I'm very curious to find out what is going on. And Tim Bailey is an ordained pastor. He serves as senior pastor of Trinity Reformed Church in Bloomington, Indiana. Uh, Tim, welcome to the show. Thank you, Bill. It's good to be with you, sir. Yeah, so these numbers are pretty uh, alarming. Yeah, it's 
not a good day for Christian faith and sexuality is, is the wedge that really is causing people to uh, turn away from, I would say, God, but certainly the church. Yeah, Tim, uh, say more about that, if you would. Well, every generation has certain issues that Satan focuses his attack on the church. Um, the life issues, euthanasia, fantasized abortion, uh, were issues that Schaefer, Francis Schaefer, and C. Everett Koop and other men faced back in the late 20th century. Today, it's all sexuality, mm-hmm. and uh, it's very hard for people not to think that they're haters if they say that homosexuality and effeminacy are sins. And so you really have a hard time holding on to people, especially if you're embarrassed of what Scripture says. And I think a lot of pastors are embarrassed of it. Mm -hmm. So tell me about your motivation for wanting to write Church Reformed. All my life, I'm 65. My wife and I have been involved in working with uh, friends and fellow church members who were gay or lesbian or effeminate. Uh, You know, living in Boulder, Colorado, and I did my undergraduate work in Madison, and then Boston, and now here in Bloomington at Indiana University. All of these places have have had a large concentration of people who are the LGBTQ persuasion. Of course, they're in the church. And so we had a uh, spent a lot of time loving our brothers and sisters in Christ who are fighting to repent of these sins. I would say that's the main motivation. The secondary motivation, though, is that when Obergefell came out of the Supreme Court, I think an awful lot of very sophisticated pastors decided that they wanted to stay a part of what, what you would call the conversation, which means you know, sort of remain palatable to the media, to normal Americans. And they crafted a compromise on homosexuality that's very sophisticated. And uh, I think that watching how that compromise is taken the church, it makes me want to return to the basics of the church that are reflected in the book of Acts. I'm not a, you know, I'm not somebody who thinks that we can repristinate you know, the church back to Acts. I'm not somebody who thinks that it's just a matter of returning to the New Testament church. But there are basic things that the New Testament church did that we're simply not doing anymore in our churches today. And it really grieves me. And I think that we should not be running scared. We have to realize that the condition of America today is because of the failure of the church to confess her faith. And so really, this book is a plea to love the church and to return to the first things that we did for 2,000 years that we're giving up now. Mm-hmm. Tim, can we get a little refresher course on what, what we would learn out of the book of Acts regarding the early well, church? In the book of Acts, yeah, sure. In the book of Acts, right away, you have the Pentecost sermon, you know, Peter preaching, and everybody says, oh, no, there's no hope for us. What should we do? And what Peter says is repent, and that is largely absent from the church today. We we don't want to preach repentance, but repentance is such a glorious thing. I was just reading an interview with a repentant homosexual gay guy out of Hollywood who was a, a designer for Hollywood. And, you know, it's on Gospel Coalition's website, and it's a guy named, uh, 
um, let me look here, Brett Beckett Cook. And you read his story, and it's just this beautiful story of being in a coffee place and seeing a bunch of Christians with their Bibles open talking about Jesus Christ. He becomes a Christian, and he forsakes the life of homosexuality, and he becomes, you know, a normal confessing Christian who repents of their sin and comes to Jesus. Well, right away in the book of Acts, as soon as all these people turn to Jesus, what we see is that it says in Acts 2 that these people, 3,000 of them, and it says, quote, they were devoted to the teaching of the apostles, number one, fellowship, number two, the breaking of bread, number three, and prayer. And it's not complicated. We're not talking doctrinal you know, disagreements between Lutherans and Congregationalists and Presbyterians and Roman Catholics. We're talking about basic things, and that's the architectonics of the book. That's the backbone, where I go through those four simple things and say, let's go back to doing the teaching of the apostles, preaching, fellowship, the breaking of bread, which is the Lord's Supper and prayer. Let's go back to doing them the way the New Testament shows and I open up what the New Testament shows about this in a non-sectarian, non-divisive way. Just the basics. And if we would return to the basics, the church would have power. And, uh, and so that's my attempt to get all of us to think about how we, we can sanctify the church because Jesus sanctifies his church. It's not a negative work. It's a wonderfully positive work. Mm-hmm. And Tim, give us a little uh, lesson on the Greek word ecclesia. Ecclesia simply means uh, called out. We translate that word in the New Testament church. The problem with this is when I was ministering up in Wisconsin outside of Madison, uh, we had a little ditty that we sang as a church. I am the church. You are the church. We are the church together. The church is not the pe- the church is not the steeple. The church is the people and. We have such trouble separating uh, denominations and organizational structures and buildings from the fact that the church is the people that God has called to himself. We're the called out ones. We're not worldling, but God has called us to himself. Mm -hmm. So, Tim, as I look on page 36 of your book, again, just a great reminder that the church— should be the teaching of the apostles, the fellowship, the breaking of bread and prayer, uh, simple yet profound. And if we regain these uh, devotions, we should be back in track, right? Right. All right, let me take a little break. Tim Bailey is my guest. He's written a book called Church Reformed. And when we come back, we'll have lots more with Tim. to the show. Tim Bailey's my guest. He's uh, written a book called Church Reformed. And uh, Tim, as I'm looking at the first of the four devotions, um, and it's the teaching of the apostles, how are we doing in that department nowadays in churches? The theme through the book is the fact that America has deep in its DNA a real hatred for authority. Mm-hmm. And I know this personally. I grew up in the 60s, hitchhiked around the country, pierced my ear, grew my hair long. 
And I realized one day that I really did hate authority. And I think the problem with our preaching today as pastors is that we try to really sort of hide not just our authority, but the authority of the Word of God. And God has been pleased to call sinful men to preach. Uh, You know, I quote in there the fact that Calvin says that, you know, God could have sent angels and God could have spoken to us directly, but he loved humbling us by having us have to feed out of the hand of a sinner like us. And that's been such an encouraging thing to me as a pastor as I see my sin and have the responsibility of preaching. And so really, we have to humble ourselves and announce the authority and the holiness of God. And it's so hard for us to do that. And so I would say that the principal failure in the pulpit today is that we don't proclaim God's fatherhood, his authority. We're afraid to do this because we know it goes against the grain of the world. And we really don't want to talk about our own authority when we're in the pulpit and proclaiming the Word of God. So that's what I would say about the teaching of the apostles. Okay, uh, Tim, what about fellowship? And you say in your book, of course, intimacy is hard work. Yeah. <laughs> if anybody, yeah, if anybody's ever been in a small group, you know, we get sick of each other, you know? I mean, <laughs> that's why divorces happen, you know? I, my little granddaughter was over at our house today, and she is absolutely certain that she's God's gift to the world, you know. She's cute as a bug, and she knows it. And I was thinking about my wife, you know, having her over at the house helping to, you know, cook lunch. And all of a sudden it occurred to me that maybe the reason she was over at our house, my, my daughter, her mother, really liked having a break from from her eminence, you know? Right. <laughs> and, and so even mothers get tired of their children. Well, I think it's important that we have fellowship in the church that's sincere and deep, because the, the currency of the church, honestly, is asking for forgiveness and forgiving others. And that's, I think, why we try to avoid being intimate with each other. But it's no good. Mm-hmm. God wants us to be humbled by asking for forgiveness and granting it to each other. Pastors of their people, I make a regular habit of acknowledging my failures and sins to my people and asking them to pray for me. And so that's what's missing in fellowship. It should be a very sweet, sweet spirit that pervades our churches. Unfortunately, if anybody's ever gone to most churches' congregational meetings, that sweet spirit seems to be absent. Mm, I would I would agree. Now, let's talk about the third devotion, and what do you mean by the phrase breaking of bread? In the early church, there was sort of a, a movement. Obviously, all nations, all places, all times, all people have always eaten with each other as an expression of their commitment to each other. And this is what the early Christians do. It says they were going from house to house, breaking bed, and they loved each other and shared. After a time, you know, if you read 1 Corinthians and you read about the fact that they were getting drunk at these, what were originally called agape meals, but Jesus had commanded, do this in remembrance of me. Uh, The church, in its wisdom, I don't think it was a decline, disciplined these agape males. It became what we know as the Lord's Supper. It's a sacrament because it's commanded by Christ, and it has to do with very fleshly, not in a negative sense, but, you know, hard things like bread and wine. 
And so today, you know, in most Protestant churches, you have a table up front that says, do this in remembrance of me, and we celebrate the Lord's Supper. And what we are not doing today that's so important is we're not warning people that this is a meal that comes after baptism, that baptism is the initiation into the church. That's the sacrament of initiation. But we're also not warning people that they need to discern the body of Christ if they come to that table. This is not something to play around with. And I'm so grieved to see a movement in churches I go to when I'm not here in, in, in the congregation I serve, that it's now becoming common for some guy up front to just say to you, hey, if any of you want to come up to the table up front, we've got you know, communion here if you want to take it. And that's all that's said. Wow. And it's, yeah, it's just not right. We need to realize that when we even drink the Lord's Supper, that we are communing with the body and blood of Jesus Christ, not transubstantiation, but but spiritually, he's present. And it's a very, very serious thing. And it's beautiful. And so I'm very worried about the fact that we're being flippant about it. And we're treating it as if it's just a way, you know, it's a memory prompt almost instead mm-hmm. of a sacrament. Mm-hmm. And Tim, the last devotion is prayer. And are we spending enough time in church services no. with spoken prayer? No. No. Okay, you didn't, you didn't even let me get that no. out. But so I think your answer is no. I think my answer is no. Uh, yeah. I have started looking, and when I go out to churches, you know, and I'm not, you know, and, I, and I'm telling you, prayer is absent today. And all through church history— The prayer time has been not quite, but almost the same length as the sermon. People pleaded with God. People took their needs to God. People, as a matter of fact, if you want to study Jonathan Edwards' sermons, a good way to do it is to find all the prayer requests that people turned into him on scraps of paper and then flip him, flip those pieces of paper over because paper was so expensive that he would reuse the prayer requests. And when you read those prayer requests, it's absolutely beautiful. All the people of the church were constantly asking their pastors to take their families before the Lord in prayer and worship services. But today, in the normal Protestant church, honestly, if people will be honest and count the minutes, I'm going to guess that most churches pray less than three minutes in a worship service of an hour to an hour and a half. Mm -hmm. Tim, what's in its place? What are you seeing in its place? <laughs> <laughs> well, it's it's what we want, and and what we want is a lot of music that's very sort of femi, uh, subjective, very emotive, very very sort of encouraging, very cotton candyish, and we just sing and sing and sing about our love for Jesus and Jesus' love for us. And listen, I am not diminishing or demeaning that. But that can't be the diet, because you end Psalm 73 with David saying, Whom in heaven have I but you? And aside from you, I did desire nothing. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is my portion forever. So the subjective emotive love is central to Scripture. But the reason we love God is that he is holy, and he has made a way for sinners to approach his holy presence. And so singing has to recover the holiness of God 
judgment. And here in the colonial times, they sang about judgment, and they particularly sang about it at Thanksgiving time when you bring the harvest in. And so, uh, really, what's replaced it is video clips, uh, a lot of emotive music, uh, and you know, talk patter. Mm-hmm. Uh, and what we have to do is remember that God gives good gifts to his children, and he loves us to come to him and ask him for it. We just uh, have a couple of minutes left, Tim, so maybe you would counsel us with uh, what lay men and and women might do with their role to shape the next generation of the Church. I think we have to recover faith in the Holy Spirit and not put our faith in how genial and nice and handsome our pastors are. You know, how sensitive to people's suffering they are. A good pastor loves his sheep, and he'll be sensitive to his people's suffering. But we we have to restore the fear of God to the church. And so I end the book by talking about discernment, how much we don't like discernment in the church, hypocrisy, and chasing numbers. You know, these are systemic failures of the church. But then I end the book by talking about the need for seeing the weaknesses of the church and working to sanctify those weaknesses, Christ sanctifies his bride. We should be willing to join him in the work, but then loving the church. Seeing the weaknesses of the church should not make us judge the church, but should make us work to love our pastors, our elders, everybody in the church, but I mean really love them. What would you say, Tim, to maybe the listeners who have become embittered against the church? Oh, bitterness is a huge problem today. Um, What I would say is that we all need to recognize that the root of bitterness corrupts many. And bitterness can be in a marriage, can be between parents and children and children and parents. It can be between the citizens. A lot of talk radio is bitterness against uh, Washington. Um, And we must repent of that because Really, I tell people in the church all the time, bitterness ultimately is always against God. And if you think about anybody that had the right to be bitter, it was Jesus. He came to his own, and his own received him not. And so Christians love not because they have generous hearts, but we love because he first loved us. And I think we have to repent of this bitterness. It causes us, you know, the whole Me Too thing moving into the church, the SBC, you know, the PCA, all these denominations, the Lutheran Church, we have to remember that we have always been led by husbands and priests and pastors who are sinners. And it doesn't mean we don't discipline their sin, but we do not have a right to reject the church and to reject the ministry of the Word and the sacraments because of our bitterness. Mm -hmm. It's just we can't do that. Yeah. Are all the grandkids as cute as the one that was over today? I got 26. Did you know that? I did not. That's a big number. <laughs> 26. Yeah. <laughs> no, they're not always cute. The boys are never as cute as the girls. <laughs> That's so true. Tim, thank you so much for uh, coming on the show, and uh, thank you for being so bold and speaking with such confidence. Thanks, Bill. Yep. It was wonderful to be yep. with you, sir. Tim Bailey's been Thank my guest. You. His book is called Church Reformed. We're going to take a little break, and we'll be right back with Mark Buchanan.
Welcome back to the show. I'm awfully glad to be welcoming Mark Buchanan to the program. He lives, uh, I believe, on the west coast of Canada. So he's written about five books, as far as I can tell. Uh, but I actually want to talk to him today about King David. I never get tired, ever. Anyone who wants to talk about King David, I'm interested. And I've got a book in my hand uh, that he's written called uh, Spiritual Rhythm, uh, Being with Jesus Every Season of Your Soul. And I open up the front uh, of the book and it says, please return to Susie Larson. So I don't know how I got this, but I'm awfully glad to have it. We're not going to really chat about that today. We are going to talk about uh, King David and what we can learn from him. Welcome to the show, Mark. I'm so glad to be with you. Thank you. Was I right about the five books? Uh, eight. Eight. And I have a couple coming out uh, in, the, in the next few months. Yeah. I, I never trust uh, bios anymore because no, I always me know. Neither. Yeah. Cause because, I, it, it, you know, it's, it's so hard to keep up with them myself, even if it's my own. <laughs> I love it. <laughs> so, do I have that right about in Canada? You live on the West. Uh... I, I did for a long time, actually, in a, a city now called Calgary, which is still West. But it's right up against the Rockies. Very lovely. Yeah. And then, uh, what hockey team do you like? I don't really follow it, but I, I guess uh, if I've got Canadian listeners, I should say the uh, Calgary Flames. Okay. Well, that wraps up all the time we have with Mark today. <laughs> As a big hockey fan myself. Anyway, um, I, I'm very interested in uh, learning what I can learn about King David. I can't uh, can't get enough about learning about King David. Yeah, me 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 as well. Yeah. Um, and it's interesting, you start this uh, article you wrote for Faith Today. Um, if you walk out on the street and ask anyone, uh, and utter, utter the words, David and, most people will fill in the word Goliath. Yeah, so very true. In fact, uh, when I was writing that, I write there and then, and I incorporated it into the article. I Google searched, and I just put David and, and the number one search result was Goliath. So, Bill, you know, I mean, the, the, even for people who are unfamiliar in general with Scripture, haven't cracked the Bible forever or for a long time, there's still this iconic association between the name David and this legendary battle. Mm-hmm. How many uh, people do you think, Mark, understand this battle? And, and you know, I think we always assume that, that David uh, had all this you know, incredible bravery and had yeah. all these fears. And he said, I'm, you know, I'm just going to, I know I'm going to be able to go win this battle. I, I think it's one of those stories that has become so iconic that the, in a sense, even among Christians, the legend of it has eclipsed our ability to hear it and, and, and see it and understand it afresh. I do think from the Psalms, clearly David had many, many times when he was quite overwrought with fear and so to think that somehow he was completely that was absent in this story is in you know it doesn't it doesn't accord with reality i think what we we have fundamentally even at the level of emotion is a demonstration of how confidence in god can override even our deepest dreads and and terrors when i think of david having to um protect the flock. I mean, there must have been some predators that he was going after that would have raised my adrenaline a little bit as well. <laughs> I mean, fair to say? Oh, absolutely. I mean, that, you know, that that's, uh, even now I've been in that, those, that, those hillsides where he would have been tending sheep and they still have a wildness, but we're going back 3,000 years. He himself, uh, the basis on which he says he has the, the, this, 
skills to fight Goliath is I fought the bear and I fought the lion. Right. Those, you know, I mean, I live in bear country. Um, one doesn't fight the bear. Well, one does what they can to get themselves out of that situation alive. You talk softly, you run fast, you do, you know, you, you bear spray them. Right. To fight the bear, this is extraordinary. So, yeah, I mean, it would be, as you say, it would be heart thumping, adrenaline pumping, but it wouldn't be a, you know, it's, it, it's not even plausible to think somebody's wandering into that without fear. It's really a question of what do you do with fear? How do you channel it? How do you... How do you submit it to uh, this sense that God is with you? Mm-hmm. And Mark, I find it interesting that uh, David started this whole process by taking some food down to his brothers on the front line. Yeah, yeah. I, I, I mean, it's, it's, it's funny because David at that point has already been anointed by the prophet Samuel. And, and um, in a sense, he's already been, been designated the next king of Israel. But uh, nobody in his family is treating him with any kind of uh, deference, and he's still an errand boy. And so his dad dispatches him from the sheepfold down to the battle line in, in the Valley of Elah to go bring cheese and bread to the to the fighting boys. He's got a couple of you know few, uh, three older brothers who are fighting in Saul's army, and so there's a sense where. Um, he is there simply, you know, to, to do an errand and ends up in sort of a spectator role, but is aghast as he looks. And now when he arrives, it's 40 days that Goliath has been out doing his, his trash talking uh, about God and, and the, you know, the armies of, of the living God. And, and Davis is, is not, isn't anybody going to do anything here? <laughs> Um, and that partly was is probably arousing, you know, already the hostility of King Saul, who's on the throne, and uh, first loves David and then doesn't, because you know, in the in the in the the culture of of an ancient uh, ancient Middle Eastern world, it was the king who was to be the champion and ride up against any challengers. And, and Saul, for forty days, has been sitting on his hands. So, Mark, you have uh, you have taught seminary courses, you yeah. have written books, you've studied, you've preached on him. So, what are some sensational moments that you have learned from all your study and pursuit of of uh, David that you can share with us? Yeah, I mean, there's so much, uh, Bill. So, uh, to narrow it down, uh, the article that you cited at the beginning of our talk today is uh, I, I pull out two things, and one is. His relationship with Jonathan, which mm-hmm. in some ways has become a bit of a cliche in Christian circles. I want a Jonathan, a friend like that. But the, the astounding thing about that relationship is Jonathan is every inch a king. He's, he's got all the makings of a king. Uh, his, his men love him. He's brave. He's courageous. He's a skillful warrior. And um, and yet he throws his lot in with David and, and, and actually has to defy his own father to do so when he, Jonathan, has the most to lose from David um, becoming the king. And so it, it, it takes the story of friendship to a deeper level. And really that, the story of David and Jonathan asks the question, am I willing to forsake some of my own birthright, in a sense, some of the things that I'm entitled to, in order to advance what I see God doing in my friend. And that's, I think, what Jonathan does. 
And really, when you frame fr- friendship like that, is I'm willing to sacrifice things, things that this will cost me, but I'm willing to do it because I see God doing something in your life, and I want to be, I, I want to serve that. And um, you know, looked at through that lens, I, I think when you have a friend like that, it's a pretty rich and beautiful thing. And to be a friend like that is a rich and beautiful thing. Yeah, I'm just racing through my mind right now trying to come up with stories that would mirror that relationship. Can you, have, can you come up with any? Because I'm always sort of a bit stumped yeah. uh, when, when I start to think that's what's going on at the heart of their friendship. Yeah, I, I was thinking of um, when Chuck Colson was uh, going to be sent to prison, I, the governor, Al Qui in Minnesota, stepped up and said, I will go serve his time. On his behalf, I mean that was kind of one of those moments right. of you know, wow. What I forgot all about that. Yes, to write. Yeah. Yeah, willingness to sort of subjugate, you know, to uh, completely relinquish your own rights, your own privileges, for the sake of what you see God doing in that person's life. I will serve it, even if it costs me deeply. That's a great illustration of that. Mm-hmm. How much? Um, how much time did David and Jonathan even have together? Probably not much more than a year. Like okay. the, the chronology is very hard to nail as we read the David story, but roughly David probably came into the court uh, around 16 to 18 years of age. He was probably already on the run by the age 20, so maybe at the outside he was in the court and, and had a friendship with Jonathan two years, but that's stretching it. It's probably closer to 18 months or less. And then here's the thing that often it gets missed with David. He was uh, wandering around the desert, running from Saul, living among the Philistines for at least 10, if not 12 years. Often we read that material, and it seems like that was, you know, he's out there for a few months. No, it was a decade or more. And because when he wow. comes into the Is it really a decade? Easily. Wow. Yeah. yeah. And that often gets missed, and that's something you have to tease out by comparing text with text and kind of looking at a few uh, uh, references to various, you know, other historical uh, uh, milestones, et cetera. But it was at least a decade he was he was out, you know, on the run. Mm-hmm. So, which is, which is interesting because, in some ways, I would argue, and 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 in some of my writing and my course I teach on David, that the 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 school for David, the most formative thing for David, was those those years in uh, in the desert when when there's deprivation, when there's loneliness, when there's when you're when you're more you know you're hunted, and there's something that's happening in terms of a, a deepening dependency on God that serves him a long time. We know he gets into trouble later in his kingship, but I think it uh, it helps kill some of the tendencies of self-promotion that otherwise he may have had. Mm -hmm. Mark, I would love for you to just review, because I think listeners would love this, just review David's basic resume. I mean, doesn't this guy pretty much have it all? Well, absolutely. I mean, he he shows up to story when he's already uh, probably mid to late teens, um, and it's when uh, the prophet Samuel goes to his house Get, got Samuel has instructions to, to anoint a new king, uh, walks into the David's household uh, family. There's seven brothers. Um, Samuel thinks any one of them could be the king. 
none of them are. God says, no, no, no. And then he asks, is there anybody else? And they say, the father, Jesse, says, well, there's the kid. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so the kid is brought in, and he's the one. And so at that young age, he's anointed king. It's not long after that that David ends up in the court of Saul, at first as his worship leader, a personal kind of, uh, he's, a, he's a court musician, he's He's like a musical therapist uh, providing music to soothe Saul's um, torment. And then he becomes armor bearer to the king. And then the Goliath episode where he takes out this uh, threat to Israel and becomes this champion of Israel. Again, he's maybe 17, 18 at that, at that point. Uh, and then this, this rapid rise within the kingship, so it seems like he has it all. He's been anointed king, that's secret. Nobody but himself and his family know that, uh, but he knows that. And so he's got this sort of seemingly rapid, you know, mercurial rise. He becomes the king's armor bearer, his chief warrior. He becomes best friend to the, the king's son, Jonathan. He marries the king's daughter, Michael. Uh, he's loved by Israel. He wins all the battles, so it looks like it's up and to the right. And then, uh, again, maybe 18 months into that, uh, Saul's jealousy of him reached a, a crisis point, and Saul keeps trying to kill David. So David heads out on the run and ends up in first the Judean wilderness, so south of Jerusalem, running around the desert. Saul hunting him, and then David at some point moves into the territory of Philistia and comes under the, the sort of protection of one of the kings of, of, of the Philistines. And that, again, is about a dozen, 10 to a dozen years. At 30 years of age, Saul dies in battle, and David takes on the throne of first the southern kingdom in Judah, and then seven years later, after a really bloody civil war with the rest of um, Israel, Judah and Israel, uh, he becomes king of all the land. So he's 37 when he becomes king of all Israel. Mm-hmm. And, and he lives till 70. So about uh, about halfway through his life, he becomes king. Has uh, many, many highlights, does many great things. And then uh, another famous and infamous story uh, probably when he's in his 40s, he stops going out to war when kings normally do that, and he gets in trouble with um, another man's wife, gets her pregnant, uh, kills the man to kind of hide the evidence. And things actually start to really unravel for David after that. Um, his, his his own family starts to really implode. And so in a lot of ways, it's it's a sad story as it ends. I think it ends finally on a a note where David acknowledges um, that he as a king needs a king. He as a savior needs a savior. He as a Lord needs the Lord. And so uh, one of the last pictures we have in David in the story is him uh, in worship and uh, saying these words. He says, um, uh, let, let me fall into the hands of God, for with him there's mercy. And, Bill, I think that really gets in some ways to the essence of being a a person after God's own heart. It's not about heroism. It's about uh, this relationship with God that even when I um, get it wrong terribly, I finally turn to God. I, you know, always this this orientation toward God. Mm -hmm. Mark Buchanan is my guest, and we're going to take a little break when we come back. Uh, Mark, I'm going to ask you to uh, maybe uh, talk about uh, David's most poignant psalms. Let's uh, take a 90-second break and be right back. 
Welcome back to the show. Mark Buchanan is my guest, who has this incredible knack for being engaging and relaxed. Uh, Mark, let's talk about the Psalms of David. Which ones really stand out for you? Well, I, I love the, the classic ones, uh, the beloved ones, Psalm 23. Oh, yeah. Uh, Psalm 139, where he talks about his wonder at God making him in his mother's womb and watching over his days. Uh, one of the most poignant, though, uh, there's a series of psalms in the uh, starting around Psalm 54 where he, he deals with what it is to be betrayed and often betrayed by people you trusted, people you knew. And let me actually read a portion of Psalm 55, beginning verse 12. If an enemy were insulting me, I could endure it. If a foe were raising his hand, uh, raising himself against me, I could hide from him. But it is you, a man like myself, my companion, my close friend, with whom I once enjoyed sweet fellowship as we walk with the throng at the house of, the, of God. And I... I I think uh, I've often preached on that psalm uh, because it gets to the the piercing disappointment that uh, many Christians have, where they've they really have enjoyed sweet fellowship with with a brother or sister, and something's gone wrong. And that if you know if this is just somebody that I you know we're ideologically, politically, or whatever <laughs> never liked each other, that would be one thing. But this is you. And I, I find uh, the, the, the ability of David to express so intimately uh, that level of personal pain is partly what makes this man so really, uh, honestly, beyond his, his time. What, uh, after all your study of David, how has your study of David shaped your own life? Yeah, I think uh, fundamentally, because it's been years and years, and I uh, actually, one of the books I have coming out in the next few months is uh, part one of a a trilogy of novels on David, and the first one deals with kind of his rise. And as I have immersed myself in the story, I think more than anything, the, the, the one lesson that stands out is how much, no matter how gifted you are, how anointed you are, how favored you are, or on the opposite, how hounded you are, how beleaguered you are, how hated you are. This this intimacy with God that um, David kept coming back to, I have learned so much from that and tried to make that the very essence of my own my own life with God. And when you know the the idea that. David was a man after God's own heart. You know, we, we hear that all the time. And when you look at David's life and you hear that he was a man after God's own heart, do you connect those dots pretty easily? Not really. Yeah. Um, I mean, even, I, the, even the biblical story doesn't. So it's in chapter 13 of 1 Samuel that uh, Samuel the prophet says to King Saul, you know, you, you've blown it and God's going to uh, choose a man after God's own heart. Even at that point, Samuel doesn't know who he's talking about. <laughs> and so, uh, and when he, as I already said, when he shows up at the house of Jesse, and God says, "I want you to go there. I'm going to show you the next king." The prophet himself is like, "Oh, it must be this guy. He's, you know, he's tall, he's handsome." And God keeps saying no, and so it seems like everybody is surprised. Everybody in David's household, David himself, and the prophet Samuel, is surprised when David, who's not 
tall. Uh, he's good looking, but he's not the strapping, you know, uh, he-man that his brothers uh, each are. And so there's a sense where um, the, the text itself is preparing us to be a little bit amazed at this. And then, of course, we know that uh, in later in his life, David makes some pretty big mistakes that we wouldn't say, oh, that's exactly how God rolls. And so that's another area, though I've spent a fair amount of time, is what does that mean to be a man or anybody, a person after God's own heart? And what it means fundamentally, in the actual Hebrew, it means here's somebody God likes. Here's somebody God has put his favor on. But that doesn't quite answer the question, why does God so attracted to someone like David? And I think fundamentally it comes down to this. David was available. David had this spirit of availability. And to me, this is such life-giving sort of insight because I don't have the giftedness of David. I don't have the leadership qualities. But to be a man after God's own heart means I make myself utterly available to what God wants to do and how God wants to move and how God is speaking. And I really do think that's that's what what that means and why David got that designation. Mark, the customary for kings to have several wives, did, did David have many wives? Yeah, he had seven, I think the count is, and then he had at least ten concubines. Um, and what we see actually, is, it's, it's sort of tragic, because as far as we know, Jesse, his father, only had one wife. Uh, uh, the tradition says her name was Nitzavit. Mm-hmm. And... Uh, but it doesn't seem like he had other wives or took on any, you know, concubines. Um, David then goes on to have multiple wives, concubines. And, of course, we know his son Solomon, who takes over his, the throne, has thousands. And they become his undoing. So there's a sort of sins of the father, uh, you know, multiplying and passing on. And so it's it's one of those those little bits of the story that is... Subtly, the, the, there's not commentary really made on it in, in the Scripture itself, saying this is naughty, this is bad. But we're being warned all the way along of a pattern here that is going to lead to, to some, uh, some great harm in his life and, and certainly in his, sibling, or in his uh, offspring's life. Yeah, Mark, w- would you say that David respected God's sovereignty? Yes, I mean, uh, uh, yes and no. I mean, the, the very critique that uh, the prophet Nathan brings after David sins horribly with uh, his adultery with Bathsheba and killing Bathsheba's husband Uriah is, is Nathan says twice to David, why have you despised the word of the Lord? Which is really, why have you not recognized God's lordship over you or kingship over you? And I think that the, the, the crucial issue for David is that um, when David, he gets punished severely for counting his fighting men, like what? But I think what's going on there is David is, it's a failure of David to actually be under and, and, and submitted to the sovereignty of God. So I would say yes, but I think it's a thing where we have these stories of egregious failure in that area and the consequences of that egregious failure. Mm -hmm. And God did promise David a descendant that would rule on the throne forever. Yes. Yes. And of course, that's the everlasting king, isn't it? Indeed. And I think that's partly, you know, I think the the arc of the story is always toward that, that this this is the Savior. My Lord, you know, the Lord said to, or my Lord said to the Lord, 
that psalm, that there's a sense where David is a growing awareness that he himself is desperately in need of that Savior. Yeah. Mark, how would our, our listeners get their, their hands on your materials? Yeah, uh, they're available on all uh, internet sites, so sure. so Amazon, etc., sure. uh, Christian Books Distributors. And the book uh, I've made a reference to, it's called David Rise, and I anticipate it'll be out around somewhere around Christmas time. Awesome. I'd love to have you back around Christmas time. That'd be great. Yeah, Mark Buchanan's been my guest, and you can go learn about him and buy any of his books on the internet. You can just go to Amazon, B-U-C-H-A-N-A-N. We'll take a short break, and we'll be back with lots more in just a minute. Thanks for listening. Programming like this is made available through your support. Information available at MyFaithRadio.com.